You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. StarCityGames.com. Not only are they the home of the top content and coverage on the web, they're also the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies. For more information, visit StarCityGames.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, it is officially summer break, and I am a free man. We are happy to have you back on the Twitch streets, Ben. We're excited for a summer of streaming. I'm going to be streaming up a storm, and I'm going to be playing War of the Spark as much as I possibly can. This format is absolute fire. The fact that anyone would think about playing Vintage Cube over this format right now is kind of mind-boggling to me. That's crazy to me. I would much rather play this format than Vintage Cube, and that's insane. That's a testament to how good this format is. It's easily top three all time for me. It's encroaching on the number one slot. Yeah, I would agree with you. This format is really sitting well with me. Ben, I feel like I got to talk to you about the deck that we drafted earlier this week, the eight cat deck, the infamous eight cat deck. That deck was so sweet. <laughs> I can't take any credit for that. I would not have ended up there. You're a genius. You wouldn't have. You <laughs> The whole time you were like, you can do what you want, but I would take something different. <laughs> I had Ben Skype into my stream earlier this week, and we drafted a deck with eight copies of Charmed Stray and two copies of Ajani's Pride Mate in the Probably one of the best draft decks I've ever had in my life. This like blue, white, proliferate cat life gain deck. It was awesome. Yeah, I need to go watch that VOD. I haven't watched the rounds. You just texted me like 25 minutes later. Easiest 3-0 of my life. Yeah, it was like the fastest trophy. Start to finish draft to finishing round three was like 50, 55 minutes. Yeah, that's busted. Well, let's take a look on that trophy leaderboard. So I am now 33 drafts deep, 77 and 21 overall record, 17 trophies. So trophying slightly over 50% of the time. (laughs) It's ridiculous. And a 79% win rate. So still riding high. Where are you at? I am also doing really well. This is the best I've ever done in a format, especially this deep. So I have 73 drafts deep, which is a ton for three weeks. Yeah. 159 and 59, 27 trophies. I'm currently fourth place on the leaderboard with a 73% win rate. Crushing it. Yeah. I mean, this format is just really sweet. It's really deep. And I think also like appeals to a lot of my tendencies. There are a lot of good build arounds. Again, it rewards good drafting, blah, blah, blah. All the stuff we've been saying and all the stuff that we're going to say this week, we're going to be building on last week's episode where we talked about like, I think the four archetypes that we've been enjoying the most, perhaps, or the four archetypes that we sort of felt like we had enough information about. And this week, we're going to extend that to a couple new archetypes. We're going to be talking about the green, black greed, the five color good stuff deck. And we're going to have Red Black Master Quarter Calls on to talk about the Red Black Sacrifice deck. But before we get into any of that, 
got to talk about that Patreon, Ben. It's still going insane. Patreon.com slash Lords of Limited is where you can go to give back to the show if you so choose. And a lot of people are so choosing to do so. And we are incredibly grateful. Of course, we want to make sure that we give you a little incentive, give you a little something, something back for doing so. Everyone who joins the base level, you get access to the Lords of Limited Discord. I got to say, it's still popping. I am loving the new format. We talked about this last week. We like did a whole sort of like revamp for the Discord, got a bunch of different categories in. There's excellent discussion popping off in each of those subsections, but it's, I think, a bit more controlled, a bit more focused, and that's making it even more lively. So it's really, really exciting to see folks joining the Discord. Again, we have some other rewards for some higher tier donations as well. And we also want to make sure that we shout out each and every new patron the first week that they join. And I'm going to have Ben help me out again because we do have a whole mess of folks. Ben, you ready? We are going to welcome Jeremy. Ask Kim. Shelby. Jimmy F. Chu. Jeff. Kevin. Eric. Vinny DePug. Nick. David B. John. Bill. Mark P. Tanner. Kaustub. Rob. Julian. Alberto. Robert. Sam. Daniel. Jacob. David R. Andreas. Christopher. Joe. Reven. Sanguku. Kyle. Ross. Charles. Andy. Lee. Mark F. Samuel. Jonathan. Kong. And Scott. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We really appreciate your support. Yeah, cannot say thank you enough. This is insane. The Discord is really growing at a rapid rate. And I think, you know, a testament to how well organized the Discord is and to the people that are in it, the Discord is still incredibly productive and incredibly helpful. And you get even more looks now that there are more people in there at the trophy decks and things like that. And just more people willing to comment on what's the pick, what's the play, building your deck. It is awesome. Yeah, shout out to our moderators as well for being so active and so helpful. And shout out to all the members for just making it a very productive environment. It's really helpful. It's not like disintegrating or like deteriorating at all. I think it's just really growing with each and every member. All right, so I think that's going to bring us to our roundtable discussion. This is going to be a bit of a cheat. This is another draft that Ben and I did earlier this week, but I think it's going to be a good springboard into some of the the discussions we're going to do before we get into the archetype deep dive this week. So Ben, you want to take this off for us? Yeah, so pack one, pick one, you see the following options. And I think these discussions are sort of going to illuminate a little bit sort of two different ways to draft this format, because I think you and I have different approaches, and we've both been very successful in the format as well. Mm -hmm. So following cards as options, no commons really in consideration. First uncommon is Tibalt Rager, one in a red for the one two. When it dies, it deals one damage to any target, and you can pay one in a red to give it plus two plus oh until end of turn. Narset Parter Avails, one blue blue for the five loyalty planeswalker. Each opponent can't draw more than one card each turn, and minus two to look at the top four cards of your library and dig for a non-creature non-land spell. And then your rare is Awakening of Vitugazi, three green green for the instant, put nine plus one plus one counters on target land you control, and it becomes a legendary zero zero creature named Vitugazi. So I think there's two interesting things that happened when we were discussing this pack. One is that neither you or I had Awakening of Vitugazi in consideration. I think you and I think the card is fine. I probably still have it at like B, B minus level. But it's a five mana spell, really sort of a six mana spell if you want to be able to use the creature, the land as the creature, the turn you cast it. And that's just not something I'm super interested in taking early on in a form in this format. Yeah, me either. It can be chumped into oblivion. The card's like a B minus B, eh, probably a B minus. And the other interesting thing is that you and I, I think, split pretty cleanly on what we wanted to take between Tibalt's Rager and Narset. For me, it's Narset, you know, close but clear. And I think you have Tibalt's Rager as close but clear. 
Yeah. And my thinking on that was that I want to take a card that's 100% of the time going to do what it does. Tibalt's Rager is great. It's going to come down on turn two, either trade with a two drop or later in the game, going to trade with a five or a six drop from your opponent. You know 100% of the time what you're getting when you sign up for Tibalt's Rager. Yeah. And as we are going to get to the next pick, I, I just love Narset. Because one, I really value the three mana planeswalkers in this set. You know, most of them. I'm sort of like medium-ish on Dovin in some decks and lower on Cure than I was early on in the format. But, you know, I just value those three mana planeswalkers because being able to get those activations off of them early if you are able to get on board with a two drop or if your opponent isn't on board with a two drop before you play it is, I think, a pretty big advantage in your favor. And this sort of led me to my realization that I think you're more interested in taking cards with high floors and I'm more interested in taking cards with high ceilings. Yeah, and I think that's been my general approach in the format so far because I've run into spots with cards like Narset where it's not a good card, right? When Narset's bad, she's pretty unfortunate. I mean, you're paying one blue blue to dig four cards deep for a non-creature spell and you have the chance of whiffing, but then when she's great, she's great. But I've found that there's enough power in the set that if I take those cards with the high floors, I still have plenty of power in my deck. Yeah, and I'm just like really interested. I think this is part of my like draft philosophy or like my tendencies is I'm just really interested in taking a card like Narset and being like, ooh, how do I maximize this during the draft? We ended up settling on Tibalt Rager because I was driving. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, who's we? (laughs) Moving on to pack one, pick two, you see the following cards as options. There's really no commons in contention here. Uncommons, there's Paradise Druid, one and a green for a two one, has hexproof as long as it's untapped and you can tap to add one mana of any color. Hwatli the Sun's Heart, two Selesnya hybrid mana for a seven loyalty planeswalker. Each creature you control assigns combat damage according to its toughness rather than its power and you can minus three to gain life equal to the greatest toughness among creatures you control and also death sprout one black black green for the instant destroy target creatures search your library for a basic land card put it onto the battlefield tapped yeah at the time i was uh recommending death sprout as the pick for a similar reason i just think the card is absurd when you can cast it though with some some time to cool off now between uh the draft and recording this podcast i do think paradise druid is probably not only the more responsible pick but just the the correct pick in general Right, because it leaves you more flexible and has higher upside. It ramps you to four as opposed to being a four drop that's going to help you fix. I think it just fixes more reliably and leaves you more options over the course of the draft. Yeah, I agree. Moving on to pack one, pick three, you see the following cards as options. There's a centaur nurturer hanging out, three and a green for the two four. When it ETBs, you gain three life, taps to add one man of any color. Callous Dismissal, one and a blue for the sorcery, return target non-land permanent to its owner's hand, amass one, and Cyclops Electromancer, four and a red for the four two, when it ETBs, deals X damage to target creature and opponent controls, where X is equal to the number of instants and sorceries in your graveyard. So I have a confession to make, Ben, and I, this sort of came out while you were drafting this deck, because spoiler alert, you ended up in this archetype. I am not good at drafting red-black, and I'm not sure I'm even good at playing red black in this format i think this stems from the fact that the deck leans in two different directions you know i think alex corticals is going to talk about that a little later on in the episode i think they touched on that on lr this past week as well that there's a more aggressive leaning version of the deck and a more controlling leaning version of the deck and i think i'm not good at distinguishing which of those two decks certain cards go into and electromancer is a card i hadn't really had a lot of experience with when we did this draft and then just yesterday i drafted a red black deck with three copies of them in a very spell heavy version of the deck and I was really impressed by the card. And now I, I get it. But at the time, I was like, Meh, it's a five drop. It's kind of clunky. You have to like prioritize spells. And am I going to be doing that? Isn't it really just a blue red card? But no, it isn't. It's a really powerful card. And I do think it's the pick here. 
yeah, I think Cyclops Electromancer is really good in any color pair but red green, and even some versions of red green I think will run run the card. Yeah, it's really really powerful. I mean, I think Cal's Dismissal is good, and Centaur Nurture is okay, but it's not as good of a follow up to Paradise Druid as some people might think, as we'll get into a little bit later in the episode. I think Electromancer is just phenomenal. So so far we've got a Rager, a Paradise Druid, and an Electromancer in our pile. Moving on to Pack One, Pick Four, you see the following cards as options. There's a Mana Geode, three mana for the artifact. When ETB scry one, tap to add a mana of any color to your mana pool. There's Eternal Taskmaster, one and a black for a 2-3. Enters the battlefield tapped, and when it attacks, you can pay two and a black. If you do, you can return target creature card from your graveyard to your hand. And there's also Angras Rampage chilling here. Black, red for the sorcery. Choose one, target player sacrifices an artifact, a creature, or a planeswalker. I mean, if there's one thing that you and I agree on in this format, and I think we have a different pick order or style of drafting maybe, but we're both really high on affecting the board early and good two drops. And I think Eternal Taskmaster checks both of those boxes pretty well. Yeah, it's one of the best two drops you can get in the format, I think, and happy to snap it up here. I think that's a good place to wrap things up here. We dallied around in green a little bit with the next couple picks out of weak packs. We took a Bond of Flourishing, took a Crunch Wrangler, then a Mana Geode. Ultimately ended up wheeling Mayhem Devil out of our first pack, and that ended up solidifying us into Black Red and ended up drafting a very good Black Red deck that trophied. Well, almost solidified. I tried to train wreck the draft, pack two, pick two, and got you to take a Rouse Outburst and maybe lean back into Multicolor Green, but we righted the ship for Lazatep Reaver, and then you did end up getting a really sweet Black Red deck with Bolus' Citadel. You had so many sweet games with that deck. So many sweet games with that deck. We 30'd someone with Bolus' Citadel, Mayhem Devil, and Jaya Venerated fire mage that was pretty sick that was a lot of deck for me to handle i was struggling <laughs> to pilot it every time chat would point out something with citadel you would just be like oh you guys are just miles ahead of me <laughs> <laughs> it was super fun all right so the reason i wanted to do that uh that draft here was because i think we're going to go into a, a list here of the top 10 commons overall that you have which i don't have card for card the same list but i think it's just important to like put something out there as a good rule of thumb for this format so what do you got for us yeah, I think I'll count down from the top down. I think that's easier to keep track of because I think it's a little more clear at the top and then gets murkier once you get past, you know, pick four, pick five. Mm -hmm. And would love to see if other people have different opinions in the Discord. So at number one, Obnixilis' Cruelty. Number two, Jaya's Greeting. Number three, Avon Eternal. Number four, Spellgorger Weird. Number five, Spark Harvest. Six, Burning Prophet. Seven, Law Rune Enforcer. Eight, Pollen Bright Druid. Nine, Callus Dismissal. 10 Lazatep Reaver and honorable mentions out to Tamio's Epiphany and Bloom Hulk. I definitely agree with the top three. Cruelty, Greeting, and Aven Eternal are like solidly there. And then I have like, you know, a different mix up there. But these are all just like the best of the bunch, I think, for sure. And I think notably, the only white common making the list is Law Rune Enforcer. I don't have Pegasus anywhere in my list. While a powerful card, I just think it pushes you towards decks that are not consistently successful in the format. So that's why I admitted that. But I do think those those decks are real if you have to draft them in your seat. But I do think you should be trying to avoid that if you can. And that takes us over to archetype rankings. You know, we talked about four archetypes that we thought were really good last week. We've got two more this week. And I do feel very good about this archetype list. So we've got them separated into four tiers here. Tier four is black, white, and red, white. I would be trying to steer clear of those two archetypes unless it's very apparent, you know, fairly early into pack one that those archetypes are wide open and that you're the only drafter and you have powerful rares that are pulling you into those color pairs. Tier three, we've got blue, green, and red, green. There's nothing really like wrong with either of these decks, I don't think. 
I've just found them to come together so infrequently. So like when it's open, I'm going to be happy to draft it, but I just don't think that's coming up super often. So I think it's low on the tier rankings, not for like lack of it being a good deck, but just that I don't think these are going to be decks you're going to end up in very, very often. In tier two, we've got black, green, X, multicolored, blue, white, and white, green. And tier one, we've got the Grixis color pairs. I think this is sort of consensus best decks among a lot of the top players. Blue, red, black, red, and blue, black. Whatever your preference decides. My personal preference is blue, black. I think some folks black, red. I think, Ben, are you are you a blue, red, or a black, red man these days? I think I'm still on blue, red, but I do like me a black, red dick. I did want to do a quick primer. We're just trying to jam as much information as possible into these early episodes of the format. I wanted to do a quick primer on black white because, you know, I did have that as my first deck of the format and I 0-3'd with it and then just sort of wrote it off. And then this week I trophied with it twice and there was a third draft that I think I stubbornly didn't move into it when I should have. And I think I would have been better off if I was black white. And I feel like I've got a bit of a sense of what that deck is trying to do that I just want to throw out real quick. I think it's a control deck at heart that operates in one of two ways. I think one way is a super friends deck. So where you're getting like a bunch of the uncommon and maybe even rare planeswalkers like Soren, Kaya and the Wanderer and Davriel, like you've got good options of planeswalkers in black and white. And I think that's where Ignite the Beacon, the rare, that's the five mana instant that lets you tutor up two walkers. I think that's actually good in that deck if you have the early board presence to take a turn off to do something like that. Aid the Fallen, Deliver Unto Evil, the rare that we talked about earlier. These are card advantage engines for those decks. So I think a black-white Super Friends deck can be successful. And I also have had a chance to play with Watley a number of times, and I think this is a good home for her. So a deck with a life gain sub-theme where you've got Big Butts and Teo's Light Shield, Charity Extractor becomes a 4-mana 5-5 with Life Link with Watley, Bulwark Giant is a 6-mana 6-6 that gains 5 life, and then a Johnny's Pride Mate is really important in this deck. It's a house as just like a good early play, and then it's going to scale with the game and really synergize with a lot of stuff. This is a fine shell for the Charmed Stray package. You know, if you are that Charmed Stray drafter, I think if you can eyeball those as first pack is like working its way and you get to wheel a few of those and then stake your claim as that drafter, this can be a fine home for that. I am still of the mindset that Cruel Celebrant is pretty terrible. Important question. Is Charm Stray still your most drafted common? Yeah, it's. I think it's. there's no way it's not going to be by the end of the format at this point because I'm so excited to get in that deck if I can. And so I feel like most there's going to be a lot of drafts where I'm just going to like end up with two because I'm like, well, maybe this is open. And then the decks where it is open, I'm going to end up with like four or five or six. And just to, just to show you the many different ways to draft this format, I currently have zero copies of Charm Stray in my collection. <laughs> is that true? That's hilarious. That is true. 100% true. <laughs> That's very funny. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what it is about that card that really appeals to me. It makes me feel so smart to be able to like to be able to say like I'm going to take this card out of the pack and then I'm going to wheel charm stray and then when it happens I just feel like there's no better feeling than that. Yeah, it is a good one. All right, Ben, 20 or so minutes into the episode, we're finally getting to our main topic. Where are we where do we want to lead off here? Yeah, we're taking a look at green multicolor and specifically I think it's mostly green black multicolor. So just general thoughts on multicolor stuff. This is going to apply across a lot of different formats. And this deck actually looks a little bit different than normal in War of the Spark, just because you have to get on board. But generally, you know, if you're talking about building a multicolor control deck, we're talking about a deck that's three to five colors, has a game plan of stabilizing in the early and mid part of the game to take over the late game with raw power level of cards. So the possibility of a deck like this within any given format, and we've talked about them before in a number of different sets in Hour of Devastation and Rivals of Ixalan and Dominaria, like all these formats had this deck viable. And you need to have three factors, I think. 
one, the fixing has to be available for you, right? You can't just be jamming in a number of basics in your deck. You have to have the fixing available. The amount of incidental life gain that exists, I think this was a big level up for us in Hour of Devastation, but incidental life gain is crucial to help you survive long enough to win. And are other people at your table drafting correctly, quote unquote? And if so, you can have the deck come together quite nicely. And the reason we talk about that drafting correctly is like what I think you and I have found is if a color pair isn't really immediately available to us in the first, let's say, six picks of the draft, then I think you and I are sort of defaulting to this kind of deck as a failsafe. Yeah. And so let's just take a look at the fixing that's available in war. So we've sort of got this divided into three tiers here. Tier one, these are the cards that you really, really want and as many copies of them as you can get for the most part. So Paradise Druid, Death Sprout, Leyline Prowler, Gateway Plaza, and New Horizons, I think in that order. Yeah, I'd say so. And I think the only caveat I would give is that Gateway Plaza is really the card that I'm like, I want one of these for sure. And then anything past that, you really have to be aware of how tempo negative and ETB tapped land is for your deck. And you have to sort of like plan accordingly. You can play two. Ryan Sachs had a monstrous deck that played three of these. I think that's a real exception to the rule. But just be aware of that. But everything else I would agree with. And in tier two fixing, these are the cards you will play, but you're not super excited to play them. Guild Globe, our get out of jail free card. Mana Geo, the three mana tap for one mana of any color. Scry's one when ETBs. And Centaur Nurturer, the three and a green. Two four that ETBs gains four life and taps for mana of any color. I was initially a lot higher on Centaur Nurturer. And then you sort of woke me up to reality here where you don't want to be fixing on turn four. You want to be fixing a little earlier than turn four. Yeah, I think at the start of the format, when I saw the spoiler, I was like, oh, Centaur Nurturer, that's like the most Ethan card I've ever seen. That's going to be my most drafted common. And you just really, especially in these decks, by turn four, I want to be playing like one of the things I'm stretching my mana for. I want my four mana planeswalker or some sort of like bomb or some creature that's going to really start to impact the board in a favorable way or like, or make me feel good about getting to cheat and go from turn two to turn four mana on turn three, you know, that sort of thing. I think Centaur Nurture is like a reluctant playable in these kinds of decks. Well, and it's competing for the slot with Desprout, which is just a better card. And then if you end up with a fair amount of Centaur Nurtures and Desprouts, all of a sudden your curve just looks horrific because you also want to play some expensive bombs in the deck. Yeah, it's really dangerous. I mean, this is one of the things that makes me think about this format like Cube so much is that you know, the four drop slot in cube is so highly contested. There's so many things you can do for four mana. So whenever I have the option to pick something that's two or three or one mana over it, that's going to be good. I always do it because I'm like, I know I'm going to get expensive stuff. And that's sort of how it feels in this format too. Yep. That makes a lot of sense to me. And then tier three fixing, you're generally hoping not to play these. Zhang Yanggu Wildcrafter, Prismite, Firemind Vessel, and Interplanner Beacon. Yeah, I think the only card on this list that I sort of disagree with is Zhang Yanggu. Like, again, this card requires a lot of setup. You have to have a ton of two drops for this to be good. And it's not a reliable source of fixing. It's a good card. It can synergize if you've got an aid the fallen or whatever. Like, it has a place in this deck. But again, I wouldn't rely on it as fixing like these other cards. Yeah, I had this early on as fixing in some of these decks, and you really have to have the two drops. In my brain, Zhang is a little more of a proliferate card now than a yeah. five color mana enabler. I think I agree with that for sure. All right, so moving on to the pieces of the deck, and this is one of the hardest parts to get right with these decks is you're sort of building a stew and you got to get the right amount of each ingredient for it to taste good. So <laughs> first piece here is fixing. Don't don't laugh at my Wait, analogy. Did Ben just make a cooking reference? I did, yeah. Wow. I, I cook stew. You. This is That's news to me. That's a That's lie. A lie. Okay. That's okay. a lie. I've never cooked stew in, the, in my life. In the turkey sandwiches of the world, you need bread, you need turkey. Like This is more your speed, I think, right? That's right. Yeah, that's a much better analogy for me. <laughs> 
So if we're taking a look at fixing, you really want four plus pieces of fixing, I think, from the tier one slot, really dipping into the tier two cards only if you have to. And things to keep in mind here, triple New Horizons will let you do anything you want because you can splash double colored cards. So once you get three of those, you sort of have the green light to go nuts. I think oftentimes you can get away with just two New Horizons if you've got like four other fixing type sources. You want to make sure that you have sources that aren't creatures. Like I think you can often get stuck with, you know, Paradise Root is great. But if you're in the Centaur Nurturer camp, you want things that are like Death Sprout or Gateway Plaza. Those are pretty key. And I think a note about Death Sprout, it's really powerful. But my experience has been, you know, we just listed a whole number of spells that create splash mana for you. And my experience has been in these decks that oftentimes I'm like eight swamps, eight forests, one gateway plaza. And I don't actually want to add a non swamp or forest to my deck for my death sprout to be fixing because I feel like it's going to impact my mana base in a negative way, you know? So I would just keep that in mind. Like death sprout is very, very powerful. And obviously you want to enable fixing with it. But oftentimes I feel like your sources are solved by like a gateway plaza and, you know, four of the spells we listed. Yeah, that's a fair point. I think it's also really important to still be two base colors as much as possible so that you can really have a reliable curve to cast your cards. A good mana base is one of the strengths of this deck. And I think you're doing it wrong if you've got bad mana. You know, I see people post pictures sometimes in the Discord or on Twitter and the decks just have a painful looking mana base and they're thinking their deck is really sweet, but I don't think you want to have a sweet deck at the cost of a good mana base. One of the ways this deck folds is to inconsistency, right? You're already sacrificing some amount of tempo and some amount of board presence to have slots in your deck that require you to set up your mana so that you can enable these bombs later in the game or on later turns. And if what you're also doing on top of that is having a poor mana base, you're in for a world of hurt. And I would really, really caution you to splashing green for fixing. I have also seen decks that are like white black with three forests, and then you've got a New Horizons and a Paradise Druid and a Centaur Nurturer, and I have no idea why green is in your deck at all. So just keep that in mind. All right, next ingredient is the bombs. You want as many bombs as you can get and cast, preferably one colored pip on the splash and if they are two colored pips of a splash color you really need a minimum of six sources preferably seven unless you have cards like new horizons planeswalker bombs are a little more of a liability on this deck because you often sacrifice some board presence to get your fixing so protecting them can be sometimes difficult ignore this if you can still get good board presence right if you've still got a good curve if you're slamming those lazatep reavers and those pollen bright druids early and often then you're probably going to be okay but just remember that you're trying to maximize those cards so that requires you to have board presence and that's even more important and i would really say like the fixing is what makes this deck possible but the bombs are what make this deck desirable yes i would totally agree with that next up we've got removal you know we don't need to tell you to draft removal interaction in a limited deck three to four catch-all removal spells go a long way here you know death sprout i think we were singing the praises of that card over and over again the common spells obnixilis's cruelty spark harvest mm, bleeding edge in some way but i really want my things to to deal with a larger number of threats i think toll of the invasion i think one of the reasons this card is so busted good is that it really feels like a removal spell because almost everyone is playing like four mana five mana six mana game breaking cards that toll of the invasion just like snaps that up and affects the board at the same time absolutely and one thing i found in my experience in these decks is that band together looks like a premium removal spell but it really underperforms in the deck 
because you don't always have a reliable creature count. And it's just a disaster if you have like the start of mana rock into, you know, Desprout into like this band together stuck in your hand, but you don't have creatures on the board to really kill the thing you need to kill. And the other thing I think you should keep in mind regarding removal is that I would really only be looking to splash premium removal like Prison Realm in this archetype because you have so many good options in black and green. Card advantage is really important to these decks. Card advantage, places to put mana, ways to recoup card disadvantage, because what you're doing in this deck is you're devoting a number of spells to things that create mana, so you're prone to flooding out, right? Because not only are these things fixing you, but they're often ramping you. So these decks often have like 21, 22 sources of mana in them. So you need things that can help recoup that loss. So two to four slots devoted to that. Tamiyo's Epiphany is at its best in this deck, which is kind of wild to say. But like every black green deck, I'm just like, can I get an Epiphany? It helps you avoid flooding because you have to devote spells, right? And this deck is significantly worse without it on the splash to dig for your bombs, right? It often helps like, you know, it's going to effectively draw you a number of cards because it's going to like bottom two lands or something and help sculpt the top of your library. Jace's Triumph can like work in a pinch. Bonds of Insight can be great depending on how spell heavy your deck is. What what else do you want in these kinds of decks? I get a lot of questions about Bonds of Insight about number of spells. I think six is kind of my minimum if they're really powerful. And generally, I want to be in the seven to eight range before I'm really happy running Bonds of Insight. Aid the Fallen can do work if you've got sort of a Super Friends version of the deck, which I do think exists. Mm-hmm. And Vivian's Grizzly is really good as a one of to dump mana into spark creepers similarly i think those are kind of the three drops you want as mana sinks and ways to dig deeper into your deck for your bombs right i think also the fact that their body is two three and not three two which i think we'll get into as some sort of underperformers in the deck is important as well because this deck is defensive at its heart in those early turns and the last thing and this is a bit different than normal in these three to five color control decks is you really still need early board presence you just it's a must in this format generally these decks play out where you maybe don't play a two drop and you're trying to ramp and have your better cards take over in the late game and invalidate your opponent's early plays, you really still need to make sure you get on the board early with cards like Lazatep Reaver, Pollen Bright Druid. Those are probably the best premium two drops at common. Eternal Taskmaster and Paradise Druid are probably the two that stand out most at uncommon. But if you just don't affect the board on turn two and then your turn three play as Mana Geode and then you play some sick card on turn four, oftentimes if your opponent has enough early board presence, they still can just beat you pretty easily so cards that pull you into this deck specifically i think at rare any bombs in a color that has been cut from you or like let's say you take you know something like ral and then you get past a a black bomb like dreadhorde invasion or something like if you're getting these powerful cards but they're not like lining up in any sort of two color archetype that's going to be a way for me to go well maybe i can maximize all these cards by drafting the multicolor good stuff deck yeah uncommon any of the fixers paradise druid desprout leyline prowler those are all reasons to go into the deck if you're starting to see those you know pick four pick five pick six and then at common gateway plaza i think just picking that up when you have a chance and that's not even necessarily centric to the green black version of the deck but just good drafting practice i think to pick gateway plaza and guild globe over replacement level type cards and as we've been saying like this should not be your primary plan when you sit down to draft if you're trying to maximize your win rate this is a deck that you want to draft if your draft starts messily or with powerful cards or oftentimes if your draft starts with not powerful cards then i sort of lean here by going well maybe if my deck isn't ending up with like a good streamlined two color version with good commons then i'll just start picking up fixing and hope that i open or get past good rares once people around me figure out what their color pairs are 
Right. I think the other way to get into the deck is if you start with the powerful green, black, gold cards like Desprout or Leyline Prowler. And one thing you brought up when we were drafting this deck is that pack three is really the sweet spot where you get paid off for this deck. And that's something to, I think, keep in mind is just, just be patient that it's yeah. going to come because that's when you know people have locked into their two color decks. And pack three is really where you start seeing some late powerful cards go around that people can't take advantage of. Yeah, and it doesn't take much. I mean, I have found myself drafting this kind of deck and, and sort of freaking out a little bit in pack two, but it doesn't take more than like two really strong cards at uncommon even or rare or mythic rare to get shipped to you before you're like, oh, now it's worth it for me to have this sort of deck. I just can't overstate enough how important Tamiyo's Epiphany is to this deck. Mm -hmm. I think if you have a version without Tamiyo's Epiphany, it's significantly worse. Well, I mean, if you don't have Tamiyo's Epiphany, then you would hope that maybe some of your rares are doing the card advantage work for you. You know, maybe you've got an Ugin or something or a God Eternal, like something that's going to help recuperate the loss from investing a lot of spells and a lot of early turns into setting up your mana. Yeah, and I think the reason to draft this deck is, again, you know, when you're not getting that clear lane, this is another way to get into like a tier two type archetype that lets you take advantage of all the powerful cards that are in the format. So even more so than in other formats, you know, you're way more likely to get past some bombs that people can't play here. And then as far as deck underperformers, I think Prismite is not where you want to be for fixing. Firemind Vessel, similarly, four mana is too much for fixing. And then just a couple three two creatures, Vraska's Finisher and Arlen's Wolf, really don't perform well here. Arlen's Wolf's a little better than Vraska's Finisher, but you're almost never picking anything off with Vraska's Finisher in this deck. And then Band Together, like we mentioned earlier, really is not the removal spell you're looking for. The creature to spell ratio here varies pretty wildly based on your card quality, your fixing, the ability to still impact the board early. It's generally a little less on creatures because you spend slots on fixing. And also, I would assume in this format, a lot of your like game-breaking powerful cards to splash for are going to be Planeswalkers. And then as far as sideboarding, having access to everything in your sideboard is a huge strength of this deck. So really trying to, over the course of the draft, pick up silver bullets against aggro like Bulwark Giant or extra Centaur Nurturers, and Snare Spinner can do serious work against decks that are relying on flyers to sort of punch through and win them the game. And we've talked about interactions in the previous archetypes before, and this isn't really a deck for that. This is not a synergy deck at all. This is not greater than the sum of its parts. It is purely trying to enable cards that are rawly powerful on their own. A green black is the hashtag Prince format deck. Yeah, and I think it's the right place to be in a, like a good portion of drafts when those color pairs aren't presenting themselves to you. Yeah, and I think now we'll take a look at Red Black and welcome Court of Calls onto the show. Discord member, MTGO Trophy Board leader, and Red Black Master, Alex Nikolic, aka Court of Calls. Alex, how's it going? Yeah, not bad, guys. Uh, thanks for having me on. We're very excited to have you here. You know, we were talking about like outlining some archetypes and red black seems to be at the top of the list and rather than just have ben and i talk about it and i think we've had like a handful of experience with it i believe each and every one of your trophies has been with red and maybe more than half of them with red black yeah i believe my number is uh i've done 10 drafts with red black nine of them have been trophies and the last one was getting to the finals sweet well let's dive into red black yeah so i think one of the uh one of the real strengths of red black is that it's got a great game against every other deck in the format it kind of plays into what you want to be doing in this format in the first place you know you want to be getting on board having an early board presence with good two drops but it also is able to grind the late game with card advantage in some ways being able to disrupt your opponent's hand getting rid of certain bombs that your opponent plays that you know may not have an answer to in say green white or something 
thing. So it's just overall really well, well rounded. And the commons of red and black specifically, I've just found to be so much better than, you know, not so much blue. Blue's got some pretty good commons, but compared to green and white's commons, red and black's commons are just, you know, so much better. So I, I wanted to, before we dive right into this, I think it'll be a good transition. You tweeted out a few days ago, three MTG war hot takes that I think are pretty appropriate for this discussion. What, what were you talking about? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, this is something I just... You know, I think about draft and magic theory basically all day. Um, and, and, <laughs> and these are just three of the uh, my main takeaways. And these hot takes, I don't even know if I'd call them hot takes. They're, they're just things that I've found to be true in the format that kind of go against what, what the majority of other people are saying. So my first one here is black red is the best archetype. It is especially great because you can get a good version with just commons. I think that's super important because a lot of the decks I find in other combinations are really driven by your rares, right? Like if you look at blue white, for example, like one of the big reasons to be in blue white is time wipe. You know, you open a time wipe, you want to draft blue white. In black red, I open, you know, Obnixus's Cruelty, Jaya's Greeting, and I'm like, sweet, well, let's let's jump in. Number two on my list is the format doesn't revolve around rares, and I'm tempted to say it's not a Prince format. So it sounds a bit crazy because this is. The set was probably the best rares we've seen in, I don't know, ever, possibly. <laughs> but I've just found that the commons do a good job of combating them in a way that if you're drafting optimally and you're building optimally to have, you know, a good early board presence and ways to gain some card advantage later, the bombs just like aren't that big of a deal. There's They're all beatable. The gods, yeah, they're great, but a well-timed removal spell and attacking with your creatures beats them just like that. There are some, you know, the uh, some of the finales are, are, are a bit uh, too much, but I just haven't found that most of the games revolve around the rares. That has been my experience as well. Maybe not. I'm not winning quite to the extent that you are, but I have not felt bad playing against most of the rares and even have beaten a lot of the ones that people are really complaining about. I kind of felt crazy because the first 10 drafts I did, I just kind of went, okay, I'm going to face one of these nasty bombs and I'm going to understand what people are saying. I'm going to hate this format. You know, my first 10 drafts are going to be great, but Sayonara War won't be playing you again. But it just never happened. I was just like, oh, that was that was a boar god. That was fine. Oh, that was Kefnet. Yeah, that, that was tough, but you know, I beat it. And what's number three on this hot takes list? Yeah, so number three is uh, you're taking Lazatep Reaver and Burning Prophet way too late. This is kind of a combination of things I've seen on MTGO and just my experience with these two cards. Just, you know, once again, I feel like I'm going to repeat this a million times throughout this episode, but just getting on board early with good, meaningful creatures is the way to win in this format. And Lazatep Reaver and Burning Prophet are two great cards. I was talking with Ryan Sachs, you know, friend of the show, Ryan Sachs, and we were debating whether Burning Prophet is actually better than Spellgorge Weird, not in the sense of they're in an objectively better card, but the fact that it's a great two drop in a format with not a lot of great two drops. And these cards just go criminally late from what I've seen. I've gotten like third last pick Lazatep Reaver or third last pick Burning Prophet in pack one. And I just don't think that's something that should be happening. Yeah, both those cards are great. And I think to the point where they almost pull me into red and black at this point. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I mean, Lazatep Reaver, especially just because it, it, it goes in every single black color pair. It, it fills a very important role in each of those color pairs. So give us a sort of overview about what the deck's game plan is. Is it aggressive? Is it synergistic? Is it mid-rangey? What's like a sort of summary of what red black is trying to do in this format? 
I would describe it as an assertive leaning mid-range deck. That's the most common version of the deck. There are some offshoots of the deck. You can have kind of a grindier version. But the most common one that's based on the commons is just assertive leaning mid-range deck. You want to get on board with these early creatures, one drops, two drops, Lazzap Reaver, Burning Prophet, and you want to push through the mid and late game by using, using the sacrifice synergies to press your onboard advantage. Like I kind of alluded to before, red-black checks all of the boxes of things you want to be doing in this format. The deck has the ability to pressure with ones and twos, you know, your Dread Malkins, your Burning Prophets, but it's also great in mid-range control matchups because it has the ability to grind with, you know, uh, Spark Reaver, Honor of the God Pharaoh, Eight of the Fallen. It gets access to some of the best uncommon Planeswalkers. Yeah, it's... Oof. <laughs> <laughs> He's getting all hot and bothered over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where are you at on Spark Reaper? I know Sam Black was pretty high on that in his Pro Points episode where they were talking about draft. I was surprised at how high he was. Do you agree that it's that good? I'm not quite as high on it as Sam, but I think that's more of a symptom of Black's commons being so good. Like, I think it's the fifth or sixth best Black common, but that's that doesn't really say anything about the card because Black's commons are all so great. I like the card a lot. I think that it's a card that if you say, yeah, you should be taking Spark Reaver highly, it's a great card, you might mislead people a little bit because the first copy is great. The second copy is also pretty good. Past that, they don't really stack through. Well, you're, you're, stack, you're stacking a bunch of Spark Reapers to themselves and, and you're not really gaining uh, that much advantage. I like the card because it kind of just turns your amass one creatures into, you can almost think of it like it, it tacks on an investigate to it, which is, you know, an old Shadows over Innistrad mechanic that, you could pay to draw a card in a, in a way that also helps you fight against people that are pressuring you by, you know, chumping and sacking or it, it allowing you to turn through the not so great creatures in your deck and get to those removal spells, get to those higher end creatures in the late game. So I don't take it super highly, but I'm, I'm very happy to put two in my deck. That makes sense. So looking at some more powerful stuff or looking at how you want to start out a draft, what sort of cards pull you in? You talked a bit about like sometimes it could just be Obnixilis' Cruelty into Jaya's Greeting. Any other sort of significant starts to a draft that would make you go, oh, I'd like to be red-black at the end of this? I think, like you said, the, the most common thing is I just pick up a few common black and red removal spells and then some uh some black and red creatures come come my way, some some premium ones. But some some rares that really push me then are uh Dreadhorde Invasion. I think this is the best Dreadhorde Invasion deck because one of the problems with Dreadhorde Invasion is that you draw it in the late game, it's really slow. You know, you top deck it on turn six, you have to wait a whole turn just to amass one. That's not great most of the time. But in this deck, it's insane on turn two, like always. And then if you do draw it in the late game, you start pumping out one ones that you can start sacking to to your uh, your Spark Reapers and your Oncrop Invaders and just get value every turn out of that 1-1 one -one amass. Another one is Krenko. Krenko is obviously busted, but it gets even better because sometimes you can't always get your Krenko through. This is twofold, though. In this deck, Krenko can get through a lot easier because you have access to such premium removal. And also, if you attack and you just get, you know, two goblins, and you trade with one of their creatures, that's not the best, but at least you have two goblins to sack to, to your sacrifice energy cards. Another one that I think is a little bit underrated is uh, Dreadhorde Butcher, Red, black, 1-1 one, one haste that when it deals damage, you put a 1-1 one, one counter on it, and then when it dies, it deals its damage to any target. And this is kind of like Dreadhorde Invasion in the sense that it's insane on turn two. It just keeps connecting, and then once they finally kill it, you get to kill one of their creatures or deal them six. And it's not the worst on turn six turn seven because you can just sack it maybe ping something and then kind of like krenko 
you can get it through a lot easier because your common removal is so good. An obvious one that's great is Bantu, being able to sack, you know, three things, maybe get some triggers off your Mayhem Devils and draw a bunch of cards. Bantu doesn't need a lot of help to be great, but uh, I think, you know, Red Black is certainly a place where it shines. And two cards I think are maybe not as intuitive to be really at home in this deck are uh, Bulls of Citadel and Command the Dread Horde. They're two uh, really expensive black rares that I found myself to have trouble fitting it into a lot of decks because by the time you can cast these cards on six, you might already be at seven life points. And both these cards require you to have pretty high life total to actually be effective. But in red black, one of the really cool things you can do is, you know, Jai is greeting your two drop. Jai is greeting your three drop. Just remove all your things until six mana. Command the dread horde them all back. And you got their entire board and you're still at, you know, 10 or something. Same with Bolus of Citadel. Bolus of Citadel is not a great card when you're at five life, but when you can untap with it on 18 life or something, you just get to draw and cast, you know, four or five cards in a row. It's just great. I had the pleasure of casting a Command the Dreadhorde on not one, not two, but three Charm Strays. Pay three life to get three, three, three life linkers into play. That felt pretty good. Yeah, that's sweet. And uh, any uh, other uncommons that make you feel a pull towards this deck? Yeah, uh, Mayhem Devil, the 3-3 three, three for 3, that when any player sacrifices a permanent, it deals 1 damage to any target. Dreadmulkin, that's a card uh, that I found vi- very underrated. You get it super late, it just really pulls its weight. Being able to sack all the amass 1 tokens, sacrifice things from response to removal. Eternal Taskmaster is another great one. And then kind of like what I was saying before, uh, this deck gets to play a lot of the great uncommon Planeswalkers. Tybalt's great in this deck, Angrath, Vraska. I think this is the best Obnixless deck because you actually get to use its uh, his ability. The turn he comes down, deal you a bunch of damage, kill your best creature. Yeah, I finally had the pleasure of playing with Dreadmalkin. You guys have been talking that up for a couple of weeks and it definitely performed for me. I was impressed with Dreadmalkin. Yeah, that card gets my vote for most underrated card in the set. It's so powerful. It goes so late. I think it just goes in any black deck, but yeah, definitely, especially in black red. Agreed. So how do you find yourself ending up in red and black? I mean, we've talked about that a little bit, but you have drafted this archetype a lot. And I think one of the biggest level ups I've had from our podcast just starting is when we had Ryan Sachs on to talk about drafting with preferences. Are you leaning in towards red black just from the very start of the draft at this point? I think so. Just because I've had such success with the deck, I don't want to bias myself too much in that direction just because i think that uh as much as drafting with preferences is great i think you can wind up with some real bad decks if you just go well red black's great i'm just gonna try to force it this time again but i definitely have been leaning more towards it i think what really pulls me in is the world as a whole is i don't want to say misevaluating because i don't think that's the fact but I, i think they're underrating certain red and black commons that you can pick up super late and are, uh, are are kind of at their best in red black. So for example, Honor the God Pharaoh, it helps you grind, gives you that amass one token, which, you know, in a lot of red decks, like in red green, the amass one token is kind of trivial, but in red black, you can actually use it. Spark Reaver goes late. Uh, that's another card we've talked about. And even Grim Initiate's quite good in this deck. Uh, that's the one mana, one, one first strike. And when it dies, you amass one. Uh, that's, that's not really a card you want to be playing in any other red combination. But the fact that you get two sacks out of your one drop creature is really big. It even pressures a little bit in the early game. And I think the really big one is Heartfire. This is a card that 
goes very late. You know, you'll see it with six, seven cards in the pack. I think it's a card that people were really high on at the start of the format and they've come down a little, you know, understandably, it's not a card you want too many of. But in red black specifically, you know, we've been talking about all these creatures that you can sacrifice for value and not lose any board presence. You can play two, three heart fires and that's just a B-level card in your deck that no other red deck gets to play. So if we take a look at more specifically like what your ideal curve of like commons and uncommons creatures and spells look like, what can people hope to see when they're constructing this deck? Yeah, so your bread and butter common creatures are Lazatep Reaver and Burning Prophet. Those are really the premium two drop commons in black and red. All the other black and red common creatures are kind of junky, so you really want those two. And a, a nice uncommon one is Tybalt's Rager. Goes really nice in this deck. And I don't know about you guys, I feel like Tybalt's Rager is another one that's a little bit underrated. I agree. I see that going later than I think it should. Eternal Taskmaster, another great one. Sacrifice, maybe even sacrifice a creature that has a lot of value on the battlefield, but doesn't matter that you're sacking it because you can just get it back. So uh, in your three-drop spot, I think you really want... Uh, Toll of Invasion, I think that's a card that is even better in red-black than it is in the other black decks. Two uncommon Planeswalkers are Tybalt and Sahili. Sahili might not be that intuitive to be great in this deck, but because you're running so many good non-creatures, like your Planeswalkers, your Mass 1 spells, she triggers quite a lot, and she just generates a bunch of sack fodder. Like I mentioned before, Honor the God Pharaoh, great card. Uh, helps you filter and kind of be in pseudo card advantage in a color that doesn't usually get it. And Spellgorge are weird. Card where I think we're all very high on is also great in this deck because once again, you get you have a lot of non-creatures in this deck that act as creatures. Yeah, somehow Spellgorger Weird has continued to go up and up for me all format. I came in hot on Spellgorger Weird and it just keeps going up every week. Yeah, me too. It's like every time I'm like, yeah, I've got a third Spellgorger Weird. Maybe I don't want the fourth. And then I just, you know, I play my third one that I've drafted and it grows to like a, a five, five. I'm like, uh, I, I think I probably should have taken that uh, fourth spell gorger weird. Where are you guys with on crop invader? Have you liked that card? I've played it in red black sacrifice. It's been fine. The one mana sacrifice outlet feels pretty good, but I have not found it to be quite as good as spark reaper in the couple black red decks I've played. I think that it really depends on how aggressively focused your deck is i had a deck with like two dread malkins and two of the dread horde butchers that rare black red like hasty footlight fiend that grows and i really liked on crop invader there just because it felt like my opponent had to chump it or like could never block it um in the recent lords of limited showdown video <laughs> I was just gonna bring that up <laughs> do you ben do you know that i put that as a blooper at the end oh did you I, nice. yes yeah. so i 15 ben out of nowhere with that card <laughs> for exactsies because like neither of us did the math and then he moved to blocks and then i actually started to count what i could do so the card is like I think very powerful, but I think you need to be in a bit more of an assertive version of the deck. Otherwise, I think Spark Reaver is probably just better for you to grind. Yeah, I, I do agree. I think it's a card that I don't want maybe more than two, but I think it goes up a lot if you do have, you know, you happen to have a bunch of Lazatep Reavers or you have a bunch of the, those amass one spells because it's essentially unblockable at that point. They have a real hard time blocking it. Um, but I agree, it's not a card you want too many of. In the four drop slot, I think there's like a noticeable dip in power level here. There's not that many cards I'm really dying to play. Angrath and Vraska are obviously great. And they're specifically amazing in red black because they give you three permanents to sacrifice to your sacrifice synergy cards. Some other cards I don't mind playing are like Herald of the Dread Horde, Turret Ogre, Dread Horde Twins. But, but these are pretty replaceable. Like, I, I don't really care what my four drops are. It's really about the one, two, and three mana spells. In the five and six drop slots, 
you can play a Cyclops Electromancer a lot of the time in this deck. You do end up with a lot of spells in your yard because the common removal is so good and you're snapping those up early. And then in the six drop spot, I don't mind a Tithebreaker Giant or Manticore Eternal. Those are those are both fine value-ish cards in this deck. But I think in general, you do want to focus on those one, two, and three drops. This, one of the deck's strengths is just being able to get on board a little bit earlier than a lot of the other decks in the format. So you don't really want to clog up your curve with kind of these clunkers. If you can have a deck with all one, two, three, and maybe, you know, a Vraska at the top, I think that's where you want to be. Well, and that does several things for you in the format, right? It lets you pressure your opponent's planeswalkers if they have them and or makes them uncastable for your opponent in some cases. And then if you're just curving out one, two, and three, and you still have all this good red and black removal floating around, sometimes your opponent just never even has a chance to get into the game. Exactly, right? See, this is why I just love this deck so much. It just does everything. It does everything you want to do in this format. What uh, kind of cards might you think go in this deck that don't what are some underperformers for this deck so uh, i think one that looks like it's a sacrifice energy card that you would want in most of your decks is devouring helion three mana two two that when enters the battlefield you can sacrifice any amount of creatures or planeswalkers and you put two one one counters on it for each creature or planeswalker you sacrifice this way this card is fine but with the removal in this format being so good it's such a risk to just go all in on this card even sacrificing like your two drop to this to make it a four four just feels so bad when they you know callus dismissal or they have nixus's cruelty it it's just a real tempo blowout i do like this card a bit more if you have multiple mayhem devils and that's a card i'm going to be coming back to a, a quite a bit with talking about some synergy if you have multiple mayhem devils you can kind of get a combo kill with this by just sacking you know your your five creatures on board or heaven forbid you have two mayhem devils just deal them 10 out of nowhere but most of the time it's not a card i include in my deck vizier of the scorpion this card is fine it's not a bad card by any means but i think it is on average worse than lazatep reaver in red black I just had that pick last night in a deck. No, not last night, two nights ago. And I already had a Vizier of the Scorpion and I had another choice of Vizier of the Scorpion and Lazatep Reaver. And I thought, you know what? I think Lazatep Reaver might be better than this Vizier of the Scorpion. And I couldn't make myself pull the trigger. <laughs> and then I, re I regretted it the whole rest of the draft. Yeah, yeah. The old, well, I got to take the uncommon. Must be better. I think just being a two mana spell is huge. And the death touch just isn't all of that relevant when you're trying to attack if you're attacking with your one one death touch and you know they'll go okay i guess i'll take it that's it's not uh pressing your advantage in the way you really want to goblin assault team is one that i've uh, a lot of people on twitter have asked me oh why don't you have goblin assault team in your deck when you can sacrifice to get a counter i don't really want to be playing a four mana card to sacrifice it and then get a counter on one of my cheaper cards it's it's not really what you would want to be doing with this deck some people might think that if you're red black sacrifice you're just going to be going all in on your creatures but kind of what i was saying before you you can't go all in in on one creature or spell just because the removal is so good in this format another underperformer is angrass rampage this card is fine the first one especially is okay but you don't want to get overloaded with it. It looks fancy. It looks pretty good. But all in all, it's just a you know two mana edict. Yes, you can have a Planeswalker and that's pretty good. So that's why I do like the first copy because it is flexible in that regard. But you, you just don't want to be overloaded with edict effects in your limited decks most of the time. Kai's Ghost Form is another one that kind of looks like it would go in this deck. I have not found this to do very much work. I don't know if you two have any had any opposing experiences. No, I was wrong. That card is terrible. <laughs> Point for Ethan. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, one more I have is Vampire Opportunist, but also kind of like Goblin Assailant, any like mediocre two drop. You can play these and you won't feel totally embarrassed, but you really want your two drop slots to be the premium cards, the, the Lazatep Reavers and the Burning Profits of this set. 2-1 in this set is, is pretty abysmal. 
And then in terms of like creature to spell ratio, what's the right ratio of ingredients there? Yeah, so I usually have about 13 creatures and 10 spells, which seems very low for an aggressive, assertive leaning deck. But but that's not reading between the lines. Like if you actually look at what your non-creatures do, a lot of them do make a uh, one one amass tokens, two two amass tokens, or are planeswalkers like Vraska and Angreth that add to the board. So, you know, 13 real creatures and then 10 spells, which, you know, the spell part is actually relevant for cards like Sahili, like Cyclops Electromancer. And what are some tips and tricks you've found with this deck? I'm sure you know it inside and out after playing with so much at this point. What are some key interactions or things that you might not know if you haven't played a ton with Red Black? Dreadmalkin can do some kind of tricky things. Uh, Dreadmalkin, along with Oncrop Invader, just sacking your Herald of the Dreadhorde, for example, to amass at instant speed. Dreadmalkin plus amass in general can kind of be tricky. You really have to watch how you sequence your amasses because first few times I played this deck, I ran into the mistake of, you know, go to my main phase, immediately down tick my Angrath and go, oh, I should have just sacked the first amass token, then activated Angrath to sack a second thing to get more value out of my Dreadmalkin or or be able to heart fire one of my creatures. But I was just down a creature at that point. So just, you know, sequence your whole turn before you do anything in this deck. Vraska's Finisher is a card that I have not been so impressed with, but in this deck specifically, it's okay. You have kind of little combos. You have Chandra's Pyro Helix plus Vraska's Finisher. Mayhem Devil, you know, get a ping, finish off their Planeswalker or their creature, you know, attack with your Lazatep Reaver on turn two, finish their creature off with uh, the the finisher. And uh, a card that I really, really love in this deck is Mayhem Devils. If I could play four Mayhem Devils, it'd be great just because they stack so well with each other and make your sacrifice energy cards even better. We talked about Angrass Rampage a second ago and how I don't really want that card in my deck more than one copy of it anyways but if you do have you know two three mayhem devils and grass rampage goes up a lot and in the same vein liliana's triumph which is a card that i also don't like to play very much moves into the realm of playability with sahili which is a card that i talked about a second ago uh, you can do some kind of cool tricks where you copy your grim initiate or your herald of the dread horde and you can uh sacrifice what was the token it'll die and still be able to amass so you kind of get two sacrifice triggers off of your one servo token Ooh, that's fancy. Yeah, it's, it's, I've done that uh, quite a few times. What's the number of lands you've found to be the sweet spot for this deck? So generally, I want 16 or 17 lands in this deck. That's based on how many 1, 2, 3 drops I have and if I have a higher end. Generally, if I am based mostly in the commons, I'm going to be 16 lands because I'm putting cards like, you know, Dreadmilk and Grim Initiate a good one, two, and three drops in my deck. Like I was saying before, your four and fives don't really matter, and I prefer not to play great ones. But there are situations I've been in where I open a Chandra and I open a Sarkhan, and you maybe a Bolus to Citadel, where I go, okay, these are powerful cards. These individual cards are more powerful than what I can do with the commons. I'll bump the deck's curve up a little bit, put in 17 lands, and uh, kind of be more of a mid-rangey or controlling black-red deck. You do want to lean on a lower curve if your deck is based on commons, though. Yeah, that is a sick layout of red-black sacrifice you just put down for us. You know, you've been winning a ton, having a ton of success. To people out there that are maybe frustrated with the format or have lost a lot to bomb rears and are kind of down on the format, do you have any advice for those type of people? Yeah, I think uh, the way I've really found success in this format is just following the formula of having good early board presence and ways you can grind in the late game. You know, I think you guys talked last week about how the rare planeswalkers and a lot of the bombs aren't as good if 
your opponent has a board presence array. You know, if you can't protect your Ral or your Ajani and it's just going to die if you play it, then it doesn't do that much. If you want to combat these bombs, even the God Eternals get an early board presence. And then if that early onslaught of board presence isn't enough, you have ways, you have tools at common to grind them out of the game with, you know, Cameo's Epiphany, Aid the Fallen, just these grindy cards that work really well against your opponent toll of the invasion is uh is another all-star i know you guys have also liked that one yeah that card has been great about dealing with people that have better cards than me yeah and i think uh in the draft portion just don't be afraid to abandon your first pick bomb i found that a lot of people want to stick with their first pick because it's such a good card right and and i think that's totally valid you know you open a a living twister or you open a sarcan you really want to play it but if the rest of your supporting cast isn't great, then that Living Twister or that Sarkhan isn't going to be able to carry the whole game for you. I found a lot of my drafts have gone really well just by identifying the open colors and getting past some of those awesome rares like Vivian and even like some mythics like the gods. I've been past those, which that's just great if that you end up in a seat where that happens. That seems insane. Yeah, I've gotten past some busted stuff as well, too. Yeah, I really think it's important to identify the open lane. Thanks so much for joining us, Alex. Where can people find you? Yeah, so you can find me on uh, Twitch. My username is cord underscore O underscore calls. I will be streaming there more often than I have been because this set is awesome and I want to play it more and I want to share my experiences with other people. Yeah, you can also find me on Twitter. My username is the same as my Twitch name or you can search Alex, N-I-K-O-L-I-C. I'm happy to answer a question about the format anytime. I love just delving into the nitty gritty, getting into format discussions of should you play the the fourth Lazatep Reaver over the, the second Obnix's Cruelty or whatever it is? Hit me up. <laughs> yeah, and if you're in the Lords of Limited Discord, you are certainly familiar with Cortocalls because he is one of the most active members of that Discord, and I'm sure he has helped you out. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, thanks for uh, providing such a great uh, platform. Yeah, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right, catch you later. All right, bye-bye. Thank you very much to Quarter Calls for coming on. Again, it was really great to get perspective from somebody that is awesome at playing Red Black and crushing this format. I think that's a good place to wrap up this episode. Tons of information jam-packed in as usual. But before we go, we've also got a Modern Horizons preview card for you. And thank you very much to Wizards of the Coast for this free preview content. We really enjoy being a part of spoiler season. Ethan, take us away. What's our card here? All right, we have a reprint from Invasion, blah, 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 blast from the past. This card is Dismantling Blow, two and a white for an instant. It has Kicker of two and a blue, destroy target artifact or enchantment. If this spell was kicked, draw two cards. Those three magical words, Ben. That is a lot of value if you kick this card. Yeah, so, you know, we see a disenchant effect with some value tacked on, but it's in a second color. It's just going to depend on how many artifacts and enchantments there are and if a naturalized disenchant effect is main deckable or not, right? Right. Maybe this is a nod to the fact that there might be an artifact enchantment sub theme running around. Yeah, I don't know. It's nice to see Kicker here. You know, there's going to be, what is it? I think Morrow said on uh, Twitter today that there's going to be 40 non-evergreen mechanics in this set. That is so many mechanics. <laughs> it's going to be a bit of an overload for you, huh, bud? Nah, I'm equipped. I've been playing Magic since I was a wee lad. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're going to do great. All right. Well, uh, thanks again to Wizards for the free preview content. It's super awesome to be part of spoiler season. and looking forward to casting our card, Dismantling Blow. Blowing up those artifacts and enchantments. 
Boom. All right. That's a good place to wrap us up there. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give that a listen. As we said, it's summer break. Ben's going to be back on the mean streets of Twitch, twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome to check out his stream, twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware for mine. We are both under those same usernames on Twitter as well, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. If you want some more information on how to draft the green five-color deck in this format, you can check out my latest article on Cardsphere's blog. Next week is our 100th show. We have a really cool episode planned next week. I think it's going to be fun for both Ben and me and all of our listeners out there, so stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next week for the 100th episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Taskmaster, one and a black for the two three when it eats Nope. When it ETBs it taps itself. <laughs> that's that's the best way to say that. Because you can splash double colored cards. So once you get three of those, you sort of have the green light to go nuts. And then oftentimes you can get away with just two. What does that even mean? Like you, you said triple in horizon unless you do anything. Oh, I'm yeah, just yeah, saying, yeah. like often you can get away with two if you've got other Oh, so you wrote I wrote that. that. I was going to say, I don't remember writing that. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's like the right place to be, you know, some number of drafts. And I think it's the right place to be. Oh my God, what am I trying to say?